Please turn again this morning to John 19 and verse 28, where we find our text. John 19, verse 28, our title this morning is Christ Thirsting. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. The fifth of the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and the shortest of these seven sentences. We've considered the first four. The first, a prayer, Father, forgive them. The second, an evangelistic verse speaking to the thief on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Salvation granted. The third, provision for his own mother, keeping the fifth commandment. Woman, behold thy son. And the fourth, a plea, a plea of anguish, of torment, of Christ speaking again in prayer to his heavenly Father. Why hast thou forsaken me? And the fifth, just one word in Greek, in the original tongue, just one word, but two for us, I thirst, I thirst. It seems he's speaking about himself, the only reference really that Christ makes to his own need, his own anguish. And yet that's not really why he says this word, I thirst. He says it for our benefit. He says it to tell us something of his heart. After this, a reference to the darkness which has now finished, three hours of light, three hours of darkness. After this, the happenings, the events, of which there are many surrounding the cross, and he says, these things have now finished. The first part of the cross. But it hasn't yet finished. For he still needs to fulfill the prophecies that are about him. While he is alive, there will be others as he breathes his last breath. And there will be yet more as he hangs upon the cross. A dead man. After this. You see, he's in full control. Every thought, everything happening around him, he's in total control. Nothing is happening against his will. He thinks of his mother. He thinks of the thief. He thinks of the crowd. He thinks of the soldiers. And now he really thinks of us. Because he doesn't say these words really to complain. He doesn't say them because he desires a drink. He says them to teach us some lessons. All things were now accomplished and he says these two words, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's what our verse says. The word accomplished means it is finished. It's the same word in the Greek as it will be in verse 30 when he says it is finished. So twice he says these things have been finished. The first part. But he needs to say something to fulfill scripture. Well, what has he accomplished? Everything. Everything which he agreed to accomplish. There's not one thing, there's no bow untied, there's no T which hasn't been crossed, no I dotted. Everything. Who of us can say that? We finish each day and we think, oh, there was so much I should have done. I often think as a pastor, your work is never done. Some of you have jobs. And your work is never finished. The work of a mother, the work of a father, parenting. It's never done. But Christ says, knowing all things were now accomplished, everything which he agreed to do, everything which he told his disciples that he would do, he has done. He said to them, I must be lifted up. And he was. But there's something more here. Everything which he needed to do for you and for me, if you will hear his voice today, if you will understand that when he died on the cross, he had you in his heart, in his eye, in his mind. He had your sin. He had my sin. Everybody that will put their trust upon him, he can say these words, it is accomplished, it is now finished. What joyful words. You don't rely upon anybody else. You rely on Christ alone. And when he says, knowing that all things were accomplished. Nothing escaped his mind. There was nothing he needed to say or to do or any punishment that he needed to take for my sin. He can say, it's accomplished. It's finished. Think of the words of that children's hymn. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And what he's really saying here is he's done it. It's finished. It's accomplished. There's a few more details left to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill scripture, but in terms of the atonement, in terms of him taking my sin, he can say it's accomplished, it's finished. Oh, that's joyful. I don't have to do anything for salvation. 
He's done it all. He's paid the price. He's taken the enormous punishment for my sin alone, let alone that vast number of people. A vast number multiplied by a vast number making an enormous punishment. And so he can say, it's done. It's accomplished. All that he set out to do. But there's something else. Scripture must be fully fulfilled. And so he says, I thirst. This is physical, it's spiritual, and it's also prophecy. And we shall consider aspects of all that. So our first point this morning is the one within the text. He must fulfill Scripture fully, fully. Do you know, I've said this before, it's as though he goes through the Old Testament, Genesis, through to the prophets, the minor prophets, and he thinks, what was said about the cross? What was implied? What was forecast and prophesied in intricate detail? Tick, tick, tick. Every single one. And then he thinks, with full consciousness of mind, ah, there's one. And in his mind's eye, he turns to Psalm 69. Turn with me back to our first scripture reading. I think these words are truly incredible. If you don't believe this morning, if there's somebody that's come in and you have in your mind a doubt, you think the Bible is a hoax, you think these are fables and stories, well, follow with me some of the verses of Psalm 69. Listen to this. Is this not Christ speak, speaking? Save me. O God, for the waters are come up into my soul. Verse 2. The psalmist and Christ feels as though he is sinking. He can't stand. The whole weight of his body is taken on the nails. I am come into deep waters. The floods overflow me. Verse 3. I'm weary of crying. My throat is dried up. Is that really speaking of David? Surely it's speaking of Christ. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. He's crying out for help. Verse 4, his enemies, they that hate me, they hate me without a cause. David can't say that. Sometimes David has been a fool. He's done foolish things. Sometimes he's caused his own problems. But the Lord can truly say, they that hate me with no cause, they're more than the hairs of mine head. David had enemies, but they weren't countless. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. 
Go down, verse 5, I think, speaks of both David and Christ. David in his foolishness, we can't say that, of Christ. And my sins, that's true of David, but the word can also mean guilt. My guilt, the guilt is laid upon Christ. And verse 6, those that seek me, they shall be confounded. Oh yes, all the enemies of God, they'll be disappointed. Look at verse 8. I am become a stranger unto my brethren. I don't think that's true of David. Christ's own family, just his mother, is there, probably. And he's become like a, a stranger, an alien unto his mother's children, his own brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus had very many of them. We think he was possibly the tenth. I am become a stranger unto my mother's children. Or we could go on looking at these words. Look down at verse 20. Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness, anguish, sorrow, grief. Surely this is Christ. And I looked for someone to take pity, and there was nobody for comfort. But I found no comfort from any human form or shape. And then verse 21, as Christ says the words, I thirst. This is divine. No human hand could have written this. 700 years before Christ is on the cross, it says they gave me gall. For my meat will come back to explain that. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, not water, not life-giving, thirst-quenching water, but they gave me vinegar, the kind of vinegar that would have extended my pain. It would have made the senses like smelling salts. It would have given me a brightness, an alertness to the pain. That's what they gave him. The second drink on the cross. Psalm 69. Psalm of prophecy. The psalm where you can go through, you can name a dozen references to Christ on the cross. This scripture, go back to John 19, it must be fulfilled. And in order for it to be fulfilled, Christ says, I thirst. Not because he was thirsty, he was. But in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. Tick. Fulfilled. Accomplished. In such a way that was just as David had prophesied, not really about himself, but about the Saviour. That's the first point. Secondly, 
Why does he say these words? You see, God and Christ are one. He is the God-man, joined intimately. But while he's there on the cross, he speaks as a human being. We've thought that he chooses not to forgive the sin of the people. That must be done by the Father. And he speaks again in verse 28 as a human being. This is not something that God says. God doesn't thirst for anything. He is self-sufficient. He is all-sufficient. He has no need of me and you. But Christ, speaking as a man, says, I thirst. He's demonstrating his full humanity. Not compromised in any way. He is fully human. He says these words in order to demonstrate his humanity. They say that on a battlefield, when you have a thousand bodies strewn across the field and the mud and the mire, the worst pain, worse than broken limbs, worse than severed limbs, worse than the crushing pain of blood loss, on such a battlefield, the Lord Jesus went to the battlefield for us. The worst pain of all is apparently thirst. You can have your legs cut off. You can have been next to a bomb. But the worst sense and feeling when blood loss is great and sweat is profuse is the feeling and the agony of thirst. We see this is what the Lord Jesus experienced as he was there on the battlefield for us. You can go weeks, I'm told. You can go six, eight weeks without eating. But you can't go more than maybe ten days, two weeks, without some form of liquid, without a drink. It's the most fundamental human need of the physical body, which is to have fluids. It's probable that the Lord Jesus, as he goes to the cross, the final drink that he takes is the night before at the Lord's Supper. That would be very fitting. And the final drink that he takes spiritually is the cup of God's wrath poured out. And he takes every final drop of the punishment that I deserved and you deserved. The one who made the oceans now has no drink. The one who told us that he is the living water is grasping and searching for his thirst to be assuaged. Well, thirdly, he says these words to just try to give us some 
understanding of the intensity and the anguish of his suffering. How else can he communicate what's going on inside? You see, the movies show Christ, but it's not really Christ. And so in order to show something, he says, I thirst deep within me. There is an anguish of soul. And the one who waters the earth with his goodness is now parched and dried. Look at another prophecy, the final one that we'll turn to. Psalm 22. We read this a few weeks ago. Psalm 22 and verse 15. Speaking of the death of Christ, it's already said in verse 1, My God, my God. Look down at verse 15, another specific prophecy. Psalm 22, David says, speaking of Christ, My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. That's an old-fashioned word for a clay pot. If you put water into a clay pot, the water, it gets soaked up by the clay. You see the clay changes color. When it's dry, it's a sort of orange color. When it gets wet, it goes a darker brown. My strength is dried up like a clay pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. All the liquid in Christ's body has seeped away. He's got no reserves to draw upon. And he calls out to convey something of what he's experiencing Physically, yes. Spiritually, definitely. And then there'll be something prophetically. So we thought already of scriptures being fulfilled. The evidence of his humanity. The intensity of his agony and anguish communicated in this one word in the original and then fourthly, there's something here for believers this morning. I thirst. We go through life. Life is hard. It's not as hard as Christ's life. But we know disappointment. We know family leaving us. We know betrayal. We know Judas's. We know unfairness and injustice of trials and courts that are held to consider what we supposedly have done and the wrong outcome comes. And then there's illness and sickness and sadness and separation. What do we do? We feel these things very deeply. I'm sure there's people suffering this morning. I know there is. I know there's anguish within the soul of many of you over loved ones that haven't turned to Christ. 
over loved ones that are ruining their own lives with the choices they're taking. They're going astray. And as parents and grandparents, it grieves your heart. What do you do? What if Christ hadn't come? What if, can I say this reverently, what if there was some magic spell? What if it was just signs and wonders and Christ didn't become a real human being? What if the word of God was just sent to us but there was no human being? There was no flesh. There was no frailty. There was no weeping. There was no tears. There was no hunger. There was no thirst. But there was. Christ experienced what you experience every day, but more. We have to go to the book of Hebrews. We read in chapter 4 and verse 15, He is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I don't know what your weakness is, what your pain, what your anguish, what your suffering is, but you have a high priest, even Jesus Christ. You have one who's felt what you're feeling this morning, but worse. You have one that knows the agony, the anguish, the suffering, but worse. You have one that knows what family disappointment is, but worse. You have one that knows the feeling of your infirmities. He knows what it is to be sick, to struggle, to have weakness, to have a broken heart. And the writer to the Hebrews says, because we have such a high priest, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, knowing that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. He feels your pain. He's not remote, distant, He's not a phantom saviour. He's not a ghost. He felt it. He wept. He thirsted. He hungered. And yet all of that without sin. And so when he says these words, there's something so very profound. I know what you're going to go through. I know, disciples, that you'll be imprisoned. I know that some of you will be martyred. I know you'll go before rulers. I know you'll have a thorn in the flesh, Paul. And I have sympathy for you. And I have an empathizing tear. And I've been there, done it, felt it, known it. And when you pray to me, which you must, you can pray as one who knows. 
feels. And one who takes the afflictions that we experience and he says that they are rather for our good. And they come to be better. And what they meant for evil, God meant to be for good. So that you would cling on to me, depend upon me. Fifthly, there's something here we must close with this. Fourthly, we thought of the Lord demonstrating sympathy for all sufferers, especially those in Christ. But there's something here that speaks to any unbeliever here this morning. You see, when he says, I thirst, he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking of something which he often spoke about. He often spoke about thirsting. Not to do with himself, but to do with every single human being that ever lived. They would thirst. You might like to turn to it, you don't need to. John 4, 7, the woman at the well, he sees this woman whose life is in a mess. She's had five husbands, she may have had other partners, her life is a scandal, it's a shame. She has to go at a different time of day because eyes are looking at her in the village and the Lord Jesus comes and he doesn't condemn her. And he says, give me to drink. Sure, he was thirsty. But he didn't say the words because he demanded a, a drink. He said it to start a conversation. Simplest thing, isn't it? Give me a drink. That's the way we try to witness. We start a conversation, sometimes about something trivial, but we have a purpose, we have a plan, we want to get to the great need, and that's what he does. He up opens the woman up. Give me to drink. And the woman replies, you know, Quickly he turns it round and he says, If you knew, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for a drink because I am the one that gives living water. Water that springs up more abundantly. Life everlasting for the soul. When Christ says on the cross, I thirst, He's speaking of every single person, the youngest child this morning. If you feel empty in life, if you feel thirsty in life, if you feel there's something missing, Christ is speaking to you. And he's saying that on the cross, I will feel, and I do feel, what every human being will feel and ought to feel in life, thirsty, spiritually. You see, Christ's words, they're not really about physical things. They're about spiritual things. They're about the great need that we will have. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 63. 
O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. The Psalms, they're not about drinks. They're about souls. And the psalmist says in life he feels empty, thirsty, parched, dry, barren. And as soon as he feels that, he will go early to his God, early at the beginning of the day, early when you feel that need. Is there somebody here this morning? Do you feel that need? You're thirsty, you're like the woman at the well. Your life is in a mess. Your heart is broken. You haven't got living water welling up inside you day after day. Life refreshing streams. The Lord Jesus says, I feel thirsty, but I am the fountain. I am the one who experienced thirst and can quench thirst for anyone that comes to me. But as we close, we have to look at the response. Verse 29. This is the human response to Christ. And I have to explain, this confuses people at the cross. There was two occasions. As he came to the cross and was crucified, we read in Mark 15, 23, there was probably a group of women that had a compassionate ministry. Their ministry was to give a wine that was mixed with myrrh. It was like an anesthetic. It dulled the senses. It made the pain just a little bit more bearable. Christ said, no, I will not take of that drink. He had to have the full pain the full anguish. There could not be any anesthesia. He refuses it. But here in John 19, verse 29, this is different. He says, I thirst, and the soldiers, they see some vessel full of vinegar. This is different. This isn't the same. This vinegar was a sour wine. This is the gall. This wine would have done the opposite to that which the women gave that was mixed with myrrh. This would have brightened the senses. It's like smelling salts. It would have woken him up. Not that that needed doing. It would have extended the agony for just a bit longer. And the best that the man can do is to make Christ suffer for longer and deeper. And he accepts and receives something of that. He tastes it. It doesn't quench the thirst. It only increases the pain. And as he is there in his final moments, 
he receives it. Jesus, therefore, when he had received the sour wine, he takes the very final amount of pain that's been allocated to him. He takes the allocation. He extends his breath for a bit longer so that he can say the remaining words, the sixth and the seventh sayings. He doesn't quench his thirst with the man-made invention. He takes it to extend his agony. And that's what he did for you and for me. If you would come to him today, do you feel your sin? When you look at the cross, do you picture your sin? Do you see his suffering there for you? Or is this remote? Is it 2,000 years ago and about other people? Think of your sin. Think of what you've done and said and been. And then in your mind's eye, go to Calvary. Think of his pain and suffering. And say to yourself, did he die for me? Could it be? Can it be? And then go to him in prayer and plead with him for forgiveness. Christ has died, but all who will come to the foot of the cross, he will turn no one, but no 